This is our last message in, from the uh, Gospel of John. So the ch 21st chapter of John, please. And uh, we're, we're going to read here beginning with verse number 15. If you'd all stand with me as we read Scripture. John 21, beginning with verse number 15. And when they had finished breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, Lord, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself uh, and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet, uh, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who was is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that, sh that would be written. Thank you. You may be seated. As I pointed out here, we're, we're closing the Gospel of John this morning. This is a, it, it concludes here with a very simple truth. Real disciples follow Jesus. This is the third appearance of the risen Christ. And Jesus, in this, in this third appearance, uh, resurrection appearance, met with the disciples on the shore there of the Sea of Galilee or Gennesaret or the Sea of Tiberias. And he met him there with this message to Peter, which not just Peter, because Peter, I think, is, is used here as a representative a leader of the disciples. And he had... And the Lord Jesus has a simple message for him. Follow me. Here's the, here's the issue. With the disciples then and with us today, our tendency is to look to Jesus as a savior, as a guide, as a protector, as a provider, uh, so to speak. And we, we look to him, but we want to live our own life. 
We have our own desires, our own dreams, our own aspirations. We want Jesus close by and we want him to help us. We certainly don't want to go it alone. But that's not the Christian life. I hate to tell you that. The Christian life is we give up our own life. And we follow Jesus. And I think there's something about that here too. The disciples, as we saw last week from the message, Peter said to... uh, said to the uh, to the uh, other fishermen there, he says, I'm going fishing. And they said, we're going to go with you. And then they're named. The, the fellows that followed him were named there in the first verses of chapter 21. And we kind of wondered why they went fishing. Some have suggested that they went fishing because uh, Peter because of his denial of Christ and because the others had fallen away from Christ as well that night, we're, we're assuming that, you know, we're, we're, we've disqualified ourselves but, but because of how we behaved on the night and that he was betrayed. So we're not worth anything to Jesus anymore. So we're going we're gonna to go back to our old profession. I do not believe that that's what happened here. Uh, There's another suggestion that they uh, went fishing because Jesus had commanded them to go to Galilee and that he would meet them there. So they are waiting for Jesus to come and to occupy their time. They said, well, let's do some fishing. You know, we've got time. Let's go ahead and do some fishing. And that could, that's a very real possibility. But I would offer a third one. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, Jesus commanded them to meet him on a, a mountain of, of which he di- uh, had directed them. Why were they then on the sea? Did they get tired of waiting on the mountain? Had they gone there and sat around waiting for him and Jesus doesn't show up? And they thought, well, <laughs> well no, I'd rather do something here. Let's, let's go fishing. Were they disobedient? But Jesus shows up on the seashore. And he's not angry. He's not throwing a fit. Screaming rebukes at them. But he's kind and he's merciful. He's a gentle savior to them. But he had given them instructions and his instructions were very clear. Tell my disciples to go to Galilee and I'm going to meet them there on a mountain that I've designated. So, now they're they're here on this lake, and I think that John uses this time to as a an opportunity to teach them something, and and as I pointed out earlier too, there I believe there's an awful lot of symbolism in this whole episode. John is clearly giving details about what happened but he's also showing how that these things represent things also Jesus post-resurrection relationship with the disciples then is going to change dramatically and I'll point one thing out to you here in a moment but let me just get the introduction out of the way here But here's the point, that no longer will Jesus be with them physically. We looked at that last week. And he's going to continue with them. He promised them, I will be with you always. I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age, according to Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. But the difference here is illustrated in the first miraculous catch of fishes, 
which occurred on the same lake, but at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, he had been teaching the disciples or people on the shore and had borrowed uh, Peter's boat there to do that because it, it made it easier. And then after he finished his message, he turns to Peter, and I think he was going to, try to repay Peter for the use of his boat. He said, Go, let's strike out here and uh, let down your nets for a, for a catch. And Peter said, well, Lord, you know, we, we've toiled all night. We didn't get a thing. But nevertheless, at your word, we'll do it. He's a fisherman. <laughs> yeah. He said, oh, I'll, I'll, I'm willing to try it again. So they did. And the, the, there was a huge catch, so much so that it would cause their nets to begin to break. And Peter falls down on his knees in that boat and cries out, Lord, depart from me. I'm a, I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. But Jesus said, it's okay, Peter. You follow me. And I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Now in that case, Peter is with them in the boat. Now, in his post-resurrection appearance, he's on the shore. He could have easily appeared to them in the boat. He'd walked on water during a storm one time, so he could have walked out to them, or he could have just appeared there like he did in, in the closed and locked room. But he doesn't. He stands on the shore and he calls out, Little children, have you taken any food? Any meat? Any fish? Did you catch anything? Which was typical of people who would come to the lake shore early in the morning in order to purchase freshly caught fish from the boats that were coming in. But they said the same thing that Peter had said that on that first occasion. Lord, we've toiled all night and have taken nothing. Or they didn't say Lord in this case. They didn't know who it was. No! We haven't anything. And Jesus told them, let down the net for, and, you'll, and you will have a catch. Just like the first time. He promised them. You let it down, you're going to have a catch. This time, they caught so many fish, yet the net was not broken. Big fish. 153 to be exact. And this time, Peter doesn't fall on his knees. He puts his fisher coat back on and jumps into the, to swim to the shore to be with Jesus. You see, Jesus is going to always be with us, but he's going to manifest his presence to us now in a different way. And he, he told them that in uh, John chapter 14. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. I will manifest myself to him. How will he do this? Well, Jesus explains a little bit more if anyone loves me and he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him do you believe that wow you know i don't see him But when I open this book, I do. See, this late. But I would also explain to you that from, from this same 14th chapter there, his uh, promise here is qualified. And this promise of a relationship is somewhat qualified. These things, this is verses 25 to 27, these things... I have spoken to you while I was still with you. In other words, physically. While I was still physically present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives give, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be fearful. Don't be upset. Anxious. Be nor, uh, nor Neither let them be afraid, he said. So he's telling them that he's going to be present with them. But it's for those who love him. And those who obey him. And he and when they when we love him and when we obey him, he in he manifests himself to us through his word enlightened by the Holy Spirit. And in this he also then grants peace. And here peace is used in the subjective sense to live without fear or anxiety. And one of the one of the things you see of God's graciousness, his his blessing upon these disciples, who are confused and they don't quite understand what's going on yet. You know, they're they're still kind of in a just like we are half the time, kind of in a fog. Lord, what are you doing? But he comes to them very graciously and he provides for them breakfast. They've worked all night. They come off the boat. Here's a fire going and fish and bread cooking. Jesus provides for a meal. And they're, they're eating this meal in silence, I believe. And what they're doing there, because of the way the, the, the text here reads, nobody dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew, but I think what's going on with him is they say, it's, it is Jesus, but there is something different. What is it? We know he's the real one. We wish he'd just say, yeah, it's me. So they're eating and they're looking at him and they're saying, it's, it's Jesus, but he's different. And they're not asking. And then after breakfast, Jesus turns his attention to Peter. And he is going to now focus on Peter the way that he focused on Thomas earlier in the second appearance. Peter, and I believe the reason is because he's obviously the leader of the group. He's singled out by this merciful Savior to affirm his call and commitment to the risen Christ. They'd followed him in his physical presence now they will continue to follow him as he is away from them. And he's going to emphasize that, that the qualification for this following is obedience to the commitment. There's a condition. What is the condition to follow Jesus? That's my first main point here is the condition to follow Jesus. Now, Peter had previously relies too much on him on himself on his own ability and he had resolutely affirmed that loyalty to, to the lord back in luke chapter 22 and verse 33 when he said lord i am ready to go with you both to prison and to death now was peter not sincere i think he was i think he was fully sincere but Peter didn't understand Peter. That is, as Paul expressed, that is, in my flesh dwells no good thing. And how to perform that which is good, I do not find. His own sinful nature is the problem, and it caused him to fail again and again. It caused him to... to uh, I, I, one brother said to me, I'd like to, I'm, I'm going to, one of the things I'm going to ask Peter when we get to glory is, Lord, how did you walk with both feet in your mouth? <laughs> and that seems to be Peter's tendency. How are you going to walk with both feet in your mouth? But Jesus wanted him to understand that his standing needed to rest on the Lord's gracious work in him, not on his fleshly resolve and determination for him. So, 
the Lord's questioning of, of Peter here, I think, involves something far greater than a mere attempt to restore Peter to fellowship. I think that was part of it. He denied him three times. The Lord uh, causes him to confess him for three times. Excuse me, three times, and to and to confess him three times. But I believe that it uh, it it rests on also a previously stated uh, principle that Jesus gives there in John chapter ten, verse twenty-seven, when Jesus said, "My sheep hear my voice, and I know them." And they follow me. And that was the Lord's original call to Peter, as I pointed out there from Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. As they came in and were starting to take care of their nets, Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So following Jesus then requires that two things, that we love him and that we obey him unquestioningly. Now, here's another issue. There's a, the threefold nature, I think, of Jesus questioning him here was more for emphasis than anything else. I've said it was not just simply to restore him. You, you denied me three times, you're going to confess me three times. No, I think Jesus is emphasizing something here. And... Uh, and also, and we don't see this in the English at all, but there, there are two different Greek words that are used here. When Jesus uh, says to Peter, Do you love me? It's the Greek word agapao, the, the, the noun not agapao. And when Peter responds, he said, Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Phileo, uh, which is... Uh, the Greek word for brotherly love. We have the city of Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love. It comes from that Greek word. Phileo. And I would, I would argue that there are four different words that are used in the Greek language for love. The one word is storge. That's one of the problems of our English language. A love lemon meringue pie. I love a well-cooked steak. I love cute little puppies. And I love my wife. But I don't love them all with the same love. <laughs> I don't think my wife is lemon meringue pie or a cute puppy. So, but the, at the Greek language has clearly delineated terms. Storge, for example, is the Greek word for love, which has to do with puppies and lemon meringue pies. <laughs> or beautiful scenes. I love being a, a resident in Lamar. You know, I storge. <laughs> That's storge. Then the second word is eros, which is sexual love in the context of marriage. Out of the context of marriage, it is sin. Period. Then there is phileo. Phileo is brotherly love, and, and that is the fondness for one, uh, for one's friends and companions. I, I, believe, I believe the distinction here be, between phileo and agape, and I'll, I should explain agape first. Agape is sacrificial love. And it is giving for the sake of giving. It is a giving-related love. Phileo is, I love you guys. I have a great affection for you. But I might not do anything for you. But if I agape you, I am going to give my life for your welfare. You see the difference? It's both are truly love. So this is this is I think is the thing, and and I wonder if if Peter didn't use the word phileo there because he under he was beginning I think to understand himself and he's saying to the Lord, I would love to love you unconditionally, but I know me. 
but you know that I love you. It's not, a, it's not an inferior love. It's not any less love. D.A. Carson in his commentary spends several pages dealing with seven, seven reasons why he argues, and I agree with him on this, that Peter's expression of love is not inferior. And it was not it was not because he was was collapsed spiritually and he didn't think he was gonna amount to anything more for God. And let me just share briefly with you those seven things. Number one, John uses these two verbs interchangeably elsewhere in his book. Now let me give you this. Here's an interesting example. In John chapter three, verse thirty five, we read here. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. The Father agapao. The Father loves His Son, agapao, and has given all things into His hands. But just two chapters later, in chapter 5, verse 20, we read, The Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. But this time, the word for love is phileo. Did Jesus somehow slip up and the Father said, oh, I can't love you with a higher love. No. It's the same love. Number two, the Septuagint. That's the Greek version of the Old Testament. Translate sometimes uses these two terms interchangeably for translating one single old, uh, Hebrew word. Let me just share that example. In Genesis 37, verses 3 and 4, it says, Now Israel loved Joseph. Israel, the man, loved Joseph, his son, more than his other, any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. The word love there is translated in the Septuagint, agapao. And he made him a robe of many colors, but when his brothers saw that their father loved phileo, him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So here the Greek translators before Christ Use it interchangeably. Number three, agapao is not a sacred word, as some assert, but one that gradually grew in prominence in Greek literature from the fourth century BC on. It just it's, it appears in the fourth century, and then in literature after the fourth century, it seems to appear more and more and more. Fourthly. The New Testament does not distinguish uh, agapao necessarily as, uh, as relating to good objects only. For example, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, where Paul said of Demas, Demas, for Demas in love agapao, with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Then number five, although each synonym has its own distinct color and nuance, its use does not necessarily signal a difference in kind. In other words, a person may love with agapao or love for phileo, and there's, there's really no difference in kind. Number six, those who argue a distinction do not argue on the point, or do argue on the points of difference. So those who say, yeah, there's a difference, well, where? They can't agree. They can't agree on it. Number seven. John consistently uses variations stylistically. And that shows up here in this passage as well. We have three other terms where Paul, where, excuse me, John uses different words interchangeably. And I won't go into that right now. But number three then. Our third point here. Jesus always used Peter's 
given name when he needed to correct him spiritually, as he does here. Simon. In fact, it was Jesus himself who, who gave him the name Peter. That's in, in uh, John chapter 1, verse uh, 42. Jesus changed his name to Peter. He said, you are Simon, the son of John. And notice in this, the same he uses the same language. Simon, son of John. Simon, son of John. Three times. Here he said, Simon, you're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. That's Aramaic. But that's the word Peter. Peter is Greek. Cephas is Aramaic. It's the same, it's the same name, just different language. But here's the, the interesting thing is, both of these terms, Cephas and Peter, mean rock. Rock. Why? He'd said, he'd, remember he said, I will build my church. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I do not think he met Peter as the Roman Catholics have, have claimed. I don't think he's referring to Peter but he's, he's telling Peter the same kind of foundation for the church is the same kind of foundation, spiritual foundation I'm going to put under you. And Jesus is going to do this, not Peter. But uh, in this case, he's not behaving like a rock. <laughs> he's behaving like Simon. So Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? But notice the first question he added, the, the, this phrase, more than these. And that's brought up the question. Is he talking about his fishing gear? Or his old life of fishing? His boats? The lake? I don't think so. I think it goes back to one of those times when uh, in, in Matthew chapter 26, before Christ was arrested, when they were on their way to the Mount of Olives, Jesus said to the disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night. Jesus knew. What was Peter's response? In, in his self-confidence, he said, Though they, referring to the other disciples, all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus cautioned him. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you have returned again, strengthen your brothers. Now that's in Luke 22, 31 and 32. It's the same incident. Now at this fire where Jesus had just served the breakfast, he pressed Peter. Do you still love me with that love that you claim to have which is more than the other disciples have for me? And Peter at this point has to say no. I don't. No. What would prove such a love as Jesus required? Merely professing one's love for Christ doesn't that proves nothing. And this is the main thing. Confession is good. But as James speaks about what is our obligation is to fulfill the royal law. You're going to fulfill the royal law in your own flesh? Mm -mm. Nope. But that's the requirement. And that has to support our confession. This is what, G what James means when he says faith without works is dead. It's not that works will get you to heaven. No. 
But it's the it's it's what you confess and profess. Is it truly a genuine faith? If it's a genuine faith, it will evidence itself in good works. That's what he tells us in Ephesians 2.10. That we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which the Lord has ordained that we should walk in them. So, here's the problem. One may claim to love his neighbor, but showing partiality... That is, I love Tom, but you other guys, I'm not so quite so sure how much I love you. Or if I show partiality to Tom, what's, what's the problem there? That is sin and transgression, according to James. And then he closes the argument by warning the reader that uh, actions and not profession is the issue and that they then those things will be judged. Even believers are going to stand before Jesus and be judged for the things done in the flesh, whether they're good or, or, or worthless. So, that then James says, What good is it then, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? That is a mere profession or confession of something save him? And I say no. So, what was then behind Jesus pressing of Peter in this question? Jesus did not need to ask Peter anything. And, he, Jesus, and Peter says that, Lord, you know that I love you. You already know it. And so Peter's grief here at the third time the question was asked, I don't think had anything to do with the quality of his love, but he's, con he's c confused. Why are you keep asking me this question? And thus Peter humbly deferred to Christ's in, in, uh, innate knowledge of him, his supernaturally innate knowledge of him, when he says, you know all things. Therefore, you know that I love you. Yes, Peter knew that Jesus knew. But the question is, how would the others know? See, that's the point. You say you love Jesus? Fine. Jesus knows. But do I know? And how do I know? So Jesus tells him right there keeps telling him and how this what this has to do with is it's and how it's related here is to his holy purpose for Peter as it relates to others feed my lambs shepherd my sheep feed my sheep who is this sheep that's the church that's his that's Christ's fold. The church he's building. For, for example, there in Matthew 16, 17, and 19. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Simon, son of John. Barjona means son of John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this, that Jesus is the Christ, to you, but my Father who is in heaven, he's revealed it to you. So then he says to him, at the end of that, after he's told him about how he's going to build the church, then he turns to Peter and says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, so that whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does that, ha what does that mean? Without any question in my mind, it has to do with our good works, our loving one another, our behavior as citizens of the kingdom and how that's going to affect other people. We, you, do you know that you have tremendous power over other people by what you do, not what you claim? So then Jesus immediately, immediately explains to Peter what it's going to cost him 
That's my second major point, and that's, I'm going to finish it up here. <laughs> the points get shorter at the end. Here's my major, this is my, but this is my second major point, the, the cost to follow Jesus. Peter's life was no longer to be lived as he wished. And that's it. Jesus explained that to him. Love for Jesus would be evidenced by Peter's sacrificial service to others, his sheep. So then, Lord, feed my sheep. You know, as I've already said, for Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. Not serving God, serving the saints. As you still do. So Jesus then continues by showing Peter what it's going to cost to it for, for him to follow him. When Peter was young, he was not a mature believer. He did what he wanted to do. Now that he was old and a mature believer, he must be willing to surrender the control of his life to Christ on behalf of others. So note, note here the text, what the text says. You will stretch out your hands. That's Peter. Not others will stretch out your hands. But then notice what follows that is out of his control. They're going to carry you where you don't want to go. You are going to willingly stretch out your hand, but they're going to take you where you do not want to go. And he said this to indicate what the death that he would die. So, John tw chapter 12, verses 25 and 26, whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Hate, in my opinion, and I need to be shown otherwise if it's not true, but hate, in my opinion, is simply not loving. It starts out, it's just simply, if, if I love the Lord, there are degrees of loving. Hate is the same way. Hate means I don't love him. And there are various degrees of hatred as well. So whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life means I'm not going to prefer my life over the life that Christ wants for me. He's going to keep that to eternal life. And if, someone, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Wow. So where, where Peter failed in his own power, he will now succeed in the power of God, but he would also die a martyr's death in that service. Jesus told him that plainly. And it may be that we'll have to do the same thing. Are we willing? Yes. Scripture does not tell us either when or how, but Jesus hints at crucifixion. That a 4th century legend has it that Peter was crucified upside down. Nevertheless, Peter's death, both spiritually and physically, would glorify God. And then what does Peter do? Puts his foot back in his mouth again. So we close with this. He turned and he saw John. And he said, uh, what about him? Jesus rebuked him. He says, what's that to you? It's none of your business, Peter. None of your business. Peter had this propensity. So now, Peter directs this Curiosity to John, and the Lord gives him this sharp rebuke. Both Peter and John were the Lord's disciples. But what Peter, excuse me, what Jesus had planned for John was not Peter's concern. Rather, he said to him, you follow me. And I can almost imagine a little anger in that statement. Let me break it down here for you just briefly for understanding. First of all, you need to understand his 
position. He was a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And a disciple was one who's lost his life in order that he might find new life in Jesus Christ. So then Jesus said to this disciple, You! And it is in the Greek, emphatic. And then he said to him, Follow! That's a command. Your concern is not with John's future, but you follow me no matter what others may do. And the object then is me. Which informs Peter that, the o- that only Jesus should be the object of his interest. Sadly, and let me just also tie this up by saying verse, verse 22, uh, back here to, it's, verse 22 says, Jesus said, to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the of the brothers that this disciple was not to die. That is John. They said John's not going to die. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, if it's my will that he remains until I come again, what's it to you? And which John explains here. But the, what's happened is that some preterists, for example, have seen this as proof that the second coming had already occurred before John's death. Because John wrote the book of the Revelation. But there's, no, there's nothing here uh, that would indicate that one way or another. But what John does here is he closes it. And verses 24 and 25, and I'll just briefly explain this. Those verses are like the two verses at the end of of chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. They relate, those verses, 30 and 31, related to Thomas. Verses uh, uh, 24 and 25 in here relate to Peter and relate to the incident of John, but only to the extent that John is, is closing it by testifying to the fact I saw these things. I'm a personal witness. And the, the, the use of the we may be just uh, a uh, the author using it here, but some have suggested that it, it was the elders at Ephesus who confirmed it. And that may be the case. Well, let me just close with some lessons. First of all, do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Are you serving him? Jesus complained, uh, claimed absolute sovereignty over the life of Peter and even his failures. This sovereignty extends to all who profess him. Peter's usefulness to Christ and his kingdom was perfectly planned in exquisite detail from the beginning to the end. We must understand this truth for our lives as well. He has a plan for you. Number two. A warning must also be noted. And that warning is this. The church of Ephesus that John served in his later years was judged unworthy. Why? Because they left their first love. Oh, how we need to be vigilant in this area. It's required of us, too, before his return. Number three, Jesus does not need to explain all that he is doing to us. He will use us, his disciples, as best suits his purpose for the glory of God and and for the purpose of the will of God. But the caution here, don't have inappropriate curiosity. I think many... Preachers have gone astray in assuming things they cannot prove. We ought to expect that our lives, as with Peter and John, could very well end in a martyr's death. We don't know. Fourthly, the sin of curiosity and, and, and the virtue of concern are addressed there in Luke chapter 13, verses 23 and 24. 
And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? That's an interesting question. Jesus responded to it by telling them, he didn't, he didn't address the question. He said, strive to enter through the narrow gate. So what? You got your responsibility? See to it. See to it. In other words, it should not matter to us who else is saved, but that we are saved personally. And does the Lord want us to do something? Or are we just wanting to know something? So Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, and I'm just going to share this. It says, Keep watch on yourself, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Sinful curiosity can lead to personal discontent, a spirit of judgment, a judgmental spirit that is, gossip, so we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, not that we desire to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but, we, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. We must keep in mind to mind our own business. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both save yourselves and your hearers. May we discover what we have failed to keep, our, <coughs> that we have failed to keep our own life while engaging in other people's business. We may discover that we have, that we have failed to keep our own life while we have failed, have uh, tried to correct others business let's pray father thank you for the word thanks for the opportunity to consider these truths this morning and may your spirit lead us to follow you lord we want to follow you we want to do your will we want to obey you in everything just like you called for peter to do that and it'll evidence itself and show itself in our willingness to love one another with a pure heart fervently. And how we conduct ourselves in that, Lord, as your Spirit leads us. And we'll praise you and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.